Let me ask you a question as we get started today. Do you know anyone, or maybe yourself if you're self-aware, know anyone that loses things a lot? Somebody last service was like, my spouse, and I called him out too. It was awesome. It was powerful. You know, someone who loses their keys all the time, maybe loses their wallet or their glasses, right? They're like, where are my glasses? I have, I have two teenagers and an eight-year-old boy, so of course they lose stuff all the time. And of course, me being a man, I can't find anything either, okay? So it's always, mom, 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 and try to help find it. She's always like, seriously, you just had to move this, and there it is, right there. People that lose things all the time. So often in our culture, our mind is all over the place, and we can't focus anymore. We can't even find some of us. Lose our keys, lose our wallet, maybe lose our minds. If you are a parent, you get an excuse. You get an out. You're welcome today. Feel good about it because you're running around with kids, right, Sue? And they're, you're trying to get them ready, trying to do stuff. And you're like, what was I doing again? What was I? I, I totally forgot. I don't know. I remember losing one of the most valuable things in my life, my son. My youngest son, who's now eight years old, as many of you know, he's high-functioning autistic. And so I remember it was a few years ago now, we were at a family wedding. And at that wedding, my brother-in-law was getting married. And I was up in the hotel kind of preparing. I was officiating the wedding. I was preparing and, and kind of in the hotel. And all the family was downstairs. They had got some food. And we're just in the lobby of like a, you know, Marriott, courtyard, Marriott type thing. And they're all in the lobby. And they're just eating and watching something on TV and just having a good time and talking. And it was in between. It wasn't the rehearsal, but it was in between time. And all of a sudden, I get a call from my wife. And she says, you know where Jackson is? And I was like, oh, I thought he was with you. And she's like no, we don't know where he is, and we're panicking. And so at that point, you know that feeling, if you're a parent, you know that you're like, oh, if you ever lost your, even for a moment, like you go to Disneyland or something, you're like, oh, where are you? Or, you know, trying to figure out what happened. And I remember just that feeling and that weight of, oh, my gosh, because he doesn't communicate, especially at that time, wasn't communicating really well. And, and so we were just like, oh, what are we going to do? And it felt like an eternity. It was really like five minutes, right? We ended up finding him. Someone came out of the elevator with him and was like, is this y'all? And we're like, oh, my gosh, where was he? And they're like, well, he was just up on the fourth floor running back and forth. And as an autistic kid, he loves numbers and is just like a magician with numbers. And so he's like elf, you know, like Christmas tree in the elevator and like all the numbers touching them all. And he just loves to climb and go up and down the elevator. In fact, when our church used to meet in a theater, he would dive into that elevator often before we could get in it. And uh, in public setting, it was scary. He was also the kid that pulled the fire alarm. But other than that, this was that moment of feeling like I lost the most valuable thing in my life. We've all felt that way or gone through something like that. Well, the scripture is not foreign to this idea. The Bible in Luke chapter 2 Verse 41 says this about Jesus. Now his, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. 
And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Verse 45, and when they did not find him, they returned back to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. That's a miracle alone for a 12-year-old. And asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary's much nicer than I would have been. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. Mary and Joseph, who had received a vision from an angel, each one of them at separate occasions, we talk about at Christmas time, the actual historical account of the angel visiting them and telling them, you are going to give birth to a son, and this son, in fact, is going to be the savior of the whole world, going to be the son of God, no pressure at all. At 12 years old, they lose him. And you have to kind of understand what was going on. It would be like losing your kid at Disneyland, not realizing it, thinking they were with you, heading on your way back to Houston, having to turn around and find out, like Home Alone. Ah, like it is not there. Macaulay Culkin is gone. You guys are too young for that movie. Okay. My gosh. This sense and that feeling of what happened, not only just my kid, like what I had experienced for a moment, but for three days, having that feeling. You ever felt like you disappointed God before? Can you imagine losing God? <laughs> Literally. And the disappointment and condemnation for three days. I was put stewardship over him. We were supposed to take care of him. We don't know where he is because at the time they would go during this feast, which was the most famous feast in Israel, and there would be scholars that would say upwards of 100,000 people or more that would descend upon Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus, they're going, what is going on? Of course, they find him. But there's some very interesting things we see about Jesus and about our relationship with Jesus in this story. We're in our series called 100 Years From Now and looking at the decisions that we make today that ultimately build or tip over like a domino effect into the legacy that we want to build 100 years from now. As a church, as a people, as a person, as a family unit, the things that I'm doing today put me on a path and a trajectory of moving forward. And I need to be thinking about my life moving forward or my kids moving forward or my country moving forward or my church moving forward and realize the decisions I'm making today is building into that. Part four today, we're talking about one of the things in our church that's most important to us and that's being Christ-centered. Now, the first thing you notice when they realize Jesus is gone where is he? It says right here, and we embolden it in Luke chapter 2, verse 43, 
that Jesus had intentionally stayed behind in Jerusalem. His passion in his heart was to center his life on God, so much to the point when they finally found him, he looks at them and is like, didn't you realize this is what my life is all about? You realize I gotta be with my father? He's the center of everything that I do. And the first thing we notice, I think that's interesting, is that Mary and Joseph and their family lost Jesus while doing their religious duty. And I think it's something that's very powerful for us to think about, that in the midst of the sacrifices that they're doing and the traditions that they're doing, and they're going to worship God in Jerusalem, in the midst of their religious activity and duty, they lost Jesus. And we can relate to that. How many of us have just tried to do the right things, and if I just pray this way or tilt my head this way, God's going to bless me, or if I do these specific things and give this money or give this thing, do my religious duty, then, then just absolutely God's going to be with me, and sometimes we do it so often or become so familiar with it, and it's ingrained in our life, which can be a good thing, but it becomes a really bad thing when Jesus isn't at the center of that thing. That religious duty alone becomes a rule I'm going to just follow, and I forget about the relationship with Jesus that is of utmost importance in my life. Doing just religious things can be done without Jesus in mind. And we often drift into that. You also see that they had lost Jesus, but they didn't even realize it. It's interesting how many people go around, again, doing their religious thing. And, and it's not just like it's apparent, well, God's not here or Jesus isn't here. He's not the center of my life anymore. But now I didn't even realize it. Like they said, his parents didn't even know he wasn't there. And the last thing you see is they assumed that he was there, but he was not. Verse 44 says, supposing him to be in the group. They assumed he was with them because they were doing the right things. And how often do we do this in our culture? I mean, we've even seen it. Some of the most prestigious Ivy League schools in America alone, you know, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all owe their origins to the gospel. They all primarily started with the full intent of training up ministers in the gospel to evangelize the Atlantic seaboard. That was, that was the primary goal of Harvard University, Princeton University, Yale University. That's how it was start. Read it. Look at their origins. Google it right now. Many of you are like, is this dude? Come on. Preacher stories. It's true. That's how it started. And yet, it started with the right intention and slowly drifted away into something else, showing us that if an entity can do that, a person can do that because entities are full of people. It starts on some type of path, even if you start with good intentions, even with religious duty, you can miss out on who Jesus is. We're talking about what it means to be Christ-centered. And that's very different than a, what a lot of us think about centeredness and think about Christianity and think about 
being a disciple of Jesus. In fact, our mission statement, we want to remind you, as we're diving into these things, last week we talked about the first part, City Life Church exists to honor God. We're talking about honor God. This week we're talking about being Christ-centered. Next week, spirit-powered and then socially responsible. And then we're talking about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a leader. But right now, this is our mission statement. City Life Church exists to honor God. How do we do that? By establishing Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible churches and campus ministries in every nation. And we want to pound that into our brain, remind ourselves, because the number one thing is, well, as we honor God, we have to keep Christ-centeredness alive in our life. But quickly and easily, we think in terms of priorities and making God the priority, like a Christmas list, and prioritizing Jesus in our life, not centering Jesus in our life. Here's the difference. When you're prioritizing Jesus, many of you guys are list-type people. Like you make a list for that week, for that day, for that year. Many of some of you have like the spreadsheets and the goals and you know where you're going and everything's going this direction. And you have your list and you have to check off that list. And it's like, first things first. I don't want to just do what's urgent. I need to do what's important. So what are the most important things I've got to get done this day or the next day or the next week? And that's a great way to think about your life, not a great way to think about God. Here's why. Because we make Jesus just a priority. So we'll say this. Okay, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm following Jesus. So that looks like to me Jesus is the first. So I'm going to have Jesus at the top of my list, which means I'm going to get up in the morning. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to pray and I'm going to do my devotion. And that is good. That is great. But often because he's just the number one on the priority, if even that, if you're honest... Make him even number one, and then I'm going to move on to the next thing. And so the next thing on my list is my family. You know, it's like Jesus, and then I know I've got to take care of my family. I've got to be a good husband, a good father. I need to steward my family well, and I need to make sure I'm taking care of my family. So like I had my Jesus time. Now I've got to think about my family. I'm going to serve my kids and serve my wife. And you're going, why is this bad? Because oftentimes we'll leave Jesus over here. Okay, Jesus, I've had my time with you. I had my appointment with you. Like you're a really good person, like a professor, like I'm a student of you, but I show up to your class from 11 to 11.50 once a week, and I love your book that you wrote. It's a beautiful book. And then I leave, and I go about the rest of my life, and I'm going to go serve my family now because now my family is a part of my priority list, and i got to do family things. And then the next thing on my priority list, maybe, maybe it might be your friends, like I've got my friends groups. I've got my, my pal, my, my person. I've got to hang out with them and, and I've got to think about them and I've got to help them. They're really struggling with this. So now I've got to spend some time with my friends. And so my family understands because I've made them a part of my priorities. But now, babe, you know, I really need some boy time. You know what I'm saying? It's fantasy football. I got to beat my dude. Here we go. I have that time sectioned off in my week. And then but also, of course, work. I mean, I've done my devotion. I've spent time with family. I've might have called a friend or looked on Facebook and connected with people. And now it's time to go to work. And for those eight, nine, ten, whatever hours you spend during that day working, I've got to be all there because I need to focus. And I know my career goals. And I need to make sure I'm focused on my work. And my family understands because I'm trying to prioritize my life. And then, of course, I know because Jesus is 
is number one priority for me. Church has to be a part of this. So I'm going to make sure I go to church and I'm going to serve here. I'm going to do these things. And, and that, that is a part of my life. And then another part of my life that's compartmentalized for myself is now my community. So now how I present myself in my community might look different how I look in my family, how I look in my church. But I know I should be doing something in the community. I need to be an activist. I need to go out. I need to do some things because I want to shape my culture. Because, see, the pastor at this church I go to called City Life Church is talking about leaving a legacy 100 years from now. So I've got to make sure I have time for all of these things and prioritize them. And I would say that's not the way of Jesus. Why? Because the way of Jesus and Christ-centeredness looks more like this. Jesus is the sun, and we orbit everything around him. So here's the difference. And this is a dramatic difference, not just something small. But the difference is when I have my Jesus time, and then I have my family time, and then I have my community time, and then I have my work time, my church time, like they're all so separated in my life. I'm just a, a, you know, bipolar dichotomy of a different person with different goals. Whereas when Jesus is at the center of all of them, I realize I need Jesus when I'm at church, when I'm with my friends, when I'm with my family, when I'm in community, when I'm at work. I need him for all of those things. So he is the central figure that everything else orbits around. So it's not my God time and then I move on and Jesus just stay there. I'll see you, I'll see you in the morning. It's Jesus lives and walks with me and goes with me to work, to my family. I need his wisdom and his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his way to think and act in order to be Christ-centered and in order to be actually a follower of his way. In fact, in the book of Acts before, Christians, which means little Christ, before Christian was even a term, in fact, that was a derogatory term in the book of Acts. No, those are just like little Christ. They're crazy. In the book of Acts, before that was even coined, they called this Jesus movement the way. Because they had a specific way to think and act and live and do community and church and work. Everything was around the way of Jesus and the ways of Jesus as he instructed in the Sermon on the Mount and in Scripture and his teachings going forward. And so their whole life was centered around him because he was the one that brought life. Here's the thing. If we're really honest in our culture, in our Christianity a lot, especially in American culture, we don't have a hard time looking at Jesus as the Savior. But we don't necessarily think of Jesus as someone that's all that smart. I mean, in fact, you know, he lived, you know, 2,000 years ago, a little primitive. Like, he didn't quite understand. You read things like the Sermon on the Mount and, and love and grace and forgiveness and not, you know, not, not judging someone until you judge yourself first. And you read all of these things that he tells us to do and you go, okay, well, that's kind of good for him. And those are kind of like good sayings, maybe some Proverbs to live by. But that's not really realistic. And if you look at Jesus as a Savior, but not that he's the most brilliant, literally the mind of God and his ways are the most beautiful and brilliant ways if you just kind of, I'm just serving Jesus in order to die well, not in order to live well in his ways. It's very hard to make him the center of my life. Because you're not going to center your life around someone that you think is 
not that smart, or you think his ways are not really realistic, well, he's Jesus and I'm just me. But being a follower of Jesus is being with him and doing the things that he does and wanting to be like him. And so having our lives centered around him as the way to life, not just the way to die well in the afterlife. That is the beginning of Christ-centeredness. Now here's the problem. This takes work. You know what I'm talking about? Guess what, guys? Being an adult is hard work. It's hard. Adulting, hashtag, adulting is not easy. I'm teaching my son how to drive right now, and I remember, you remember when you first learned how to drive? Like your 10 and 2, mirrors, lights, seatbelt, all, all of the things that you're checking off, you're thinking through everything, and it just feels like work. And you're frustrated because you want to get to the delight of it. Like, Dad, I promise I'm going to go get groceries every day. Oh, it'll last a week, right? Like, you feel like, I just want to get from point A to point B, and, and I just want to enjoy it. I want to have that freedom to be able to do it. But it just feels like work because i got to think about these laws and these people. And it feels like work. When you first learned how to ride a bike, it felt like work. And you're just like, i got to think about balance, and i got to think about this. Everything at the beginning takes Work, but the goal is to go from the discipline of it to the delight of it. And the more you do it now, you got in your car this morning and you backed out and you didn't even pay attention and you're like on your phone and doing something. You're like, oh, you're not thinking about it. You shouldn't do that. You're not thinking about it. You're just doing it. Why? Because it's natural for you now. The same thing with Christ sinners, it takes work. Why? Because we live in a culture that has a current that is trying to pull you away from the ways of Jesus. We are not a subculture, like, you know, we're just kind of these people, and then we've got, we are a counterculture as a church, as a movement, as a people, a part of the way, and disciples of Jesus that want to be Christ-centered. I went to Pensacola, Florida this last summer with my family, and oftentimes during the summer, because we're usually heading to Orlando for some church conference, um, we drive, and about halfway, seven, eight hours, is Pensacola. Beautiful white sands, real blue ocean, not like the fake uh, ocean uh, just south of us that turns blue every once in a while, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, right? And it's like a big pond, um, like it's a, it's a beautiful place, and we were there this last summer, Stuff down. I've got my cell phone on my wall. All our stuff is right there. And we go out into the beach. And we constantly found ourselves having fun and playing with the kids and all that. And just constantly found ourselves. It doesn't matter what. But we just found ourselves constantly where we went. Where's our stuff? Oh, God. Come on, kid. Come back this way. Come back this way. Come back this way. You ever done this before? And the current just naturally drifts you from where you're supposed to be, from where your origin was, from where you were orientated towards. It just naturally happens. There's no such thing as just a standstill. The Bible calls this spiritual formation. 
or, or theologians, I should say, call this spiritual formation. We are all being formed into something, and you're not just standing still, and I'm just not being formed. Like, for instance, you don't wake up, you're 48 years old, and you go, oh, my goodness, I'm living the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't had a lustful thought in eight years. I didn't realize how did that happen. Like, I don't have any worries. I'm not anxious at all. Like, the, the movie Office Space is like, I just got it, and I don't have any worries anymore. I just woke up one day completely conscious and self-aware and generous to everybody and not trying to manipulate or use any of my giftings for my own good. All of the sudden, it doesn't happen that way. It actually takes following the ways of Christ, submitting your life to Christ, and constantly looking. Look, look, look. When you're in the ocean and the culture of the world and the current of the world, that is very different than the way of Christ. Realizing I'm in the world, but I've got to constantly orientate myself back to the center. I've got to constantly, and it takes work, and it feels like discipline at first, but after a while, it becomes a delight because you learn how to do what Jesus calls abide in him, which is being with him, practicing his ways, who he is and what he calls us to do. Hebrews Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because the current will pull you away. As Jesus is with his disciples, he takes his clothes off and he puts the towel around He's getting ready to wash their feet. And Peter's like, bro, you ain't washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Why? Because the feet are in the culture. And we've got to constantly come back to Jesus to be cleansed. Not necessarily to be saved. You're saved because of what he has done when you submit your life to Christ. But there is a formation of your life and your spirit that is over the long haul. That is the domino effects of every decision and thought that you make that needs to be constantly submitted to Christ. Lest we drift away. Oftentimes, when you think about things like spiritual formation and the ways of Jesus, which we're going to talk about, like Sabbath and, and fasting, everybody loves that one, and prayer and devotion and all of these kind of things, when you think about the ways that Jesus has called us to live, we, we think, well, that's just a Jesus kind of thing. Like spiritual formation is just Jesus. And let me let, me let you know, you all, all of us, all the time are being formed into something. Everything from your school to what's on your phone to the news, everything is telling you a story, building habits, building things in your life. I mean, your relationships alone, where you eat, what you dress like, what you vote like, all of those influence you and are forming you into a certain person, whether you realize it or not. So the question isn't, are you a disciple? You don't just ask Christians, are you a disciple? That's never the question. The question is, who or what are you a disciple of? You don't just say, well, I make Jesus my center, but I just prioritize everything else. No, see, here's the thing. Everybody has a center, and they make something a center. 
that they live for, whether it's work, whether it's play, whether it's sex, whether it's money, what even good things, whether it's your spouse or your kids, if that becomes your center, it will demand the things of you and make you a slave of it without forgiveness. And you look up and 20 years later, your kids are jacked up and you go, well, I did everything for them. And they still are upset or frustrated with you. And you realize, I wasn't enough. Yeah, because that thing, you were not made to make anything the center but God. And out of that center, Jesus would say words like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and all righteousness. Then all these other things will be added. Orbit around God and my way and who he is in the relationship with him. And it's amazing how everything will set into place. Jesus would also say these words. Come to me. You who are weary and burdened and heavy laden. And he says this, I'm going to give you rest. Because he says this, my yoke, which means my teaching or even my way, is easy and my burden is light. He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way that is married to the truth that brings life. My way is actually a narrow way, which doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of people are out and a few people are in, it actually means it's, it's very direct. This is my way to live. And if you just want to live according to your feelings and everything else, you're going to realize you're drifting and you are being led into some type of spiritual formation. But my way is easier and it's lighter and it's actually what you're built for. When you make me the center, my way builds amazing things in your life. Now, I'm going to go really quick through this in our book Steve Merle talks about how churches can start Christ-centered and then drift into other things. One, he says, the preacher-centered church, which means we started like we were all about Jesus, but then he says this, everything revolves around the great man of God, the Christian celebrity who acts like the second coming of Abraham, Moses, Elijah, and Mo Paul, all wrapped into one lean, mean ministry machine. If he leads a mega church, this guy always has his own TV show and probably a jet or two. If he leads a small church, he has his own parking space and a small but dedicated gaggle of devoted fans. It's not that it's bad to honor somebody, but Jesus is the center of it. He also goes into the experience-centered church. I'm not gonna go through all of them. The worship-centered church, the doctrine-centered church. The cause-centered church, the meeting-centered church, all this is in our book, and we're going to discuss this in our small groups. But the understanding is that we will make something our center, and typically we drift towards the culture or the things that we give most honor to. So here's the question. How do we actually become Christ-centered? I think, number one, you have to recognize that something or someone is the center of your life. There's something that happens to you when you go, Okay, it's not even priority. It's like something, I have centered my life around something or someone. And even just the recognition, the self-awareness of that understanding can only be breathed by, God, breathed by God ultimately. And the recognition that I'm not just floating, I'm not just going, I'm being crafted and formed into something. Then the second part I think is repent, which means change the way you think and act. Oftentimes you have to change your thinking before your action follows, before your behavior follows. Because there's lies that you believe that need to be replaced with truth and now the action 
comes. And you need to repent from that. Like, this is a real walk and practice of people that follow the way of Jesus. Oh, gosh, I've shifted. I've lost Jesus in the midst of religious duty. Lord, forgive me. I need to change the way I think and act and make Jesus the center of my life. And then I think one of the most important ways we do that is to constantly reorientate our life by practicing the ways of Jesus, by constantly realizing there is a culture, I am being influenced, and I've got to constantly reorientate, look back, right, where's Jesus? Okay, yeah, and have that relationship and have that momentum. A few of those ways, these aren't by any means, these are just called spiritual disciplines, or the ways of Jesus, these are by any means exhaustive, but here's a few. Reading scripture. Like your devotional time, getting in the word, changing the, the, the neural plasticity of your mind, which Paul would call that renewing your mind. You're shifting your thinking, Romans 12. But then also studying scripture, which is very different. It's getting it. What does it mean? What is the context? What's happening? I'm not just reading it, but I'm getting into it. What are those words? Another practice of the way is prayer. Obviously. But having time and spending time with God because the world, in the current of the world, is just distracting you constantly. Like squirrel, right? I mean, just always, all the time, you got your phone here and you're living two lives at once. You're living your life in Houston, Texas, and you're living your life in the digital world, and you're all over the place and you're anxious and you don't understand why. And prayer, what it does is it pulls us back to fix our eyes on God and who He is, and to pray for others, not just ourselves and worry about ourselves. Here's another practice is Sabbath. Now, this isn't like a command. You, if you don't do this, you won't, these aren't things that you have to do to go to heaven. The only thing you can do to go to heaven is what Jesus has done and believe in that. But because of that, now I want to follow him. Following him means following him in his ways. And that is Sabbath saying, okay, I could work seven days a week. I could work 24-7, but I know I'm going to burn out, and I'm not called to be a human doing, but a human being. And so I need to give time to just put work down, put those things down, and say, God, I trust you can do more with six days than I can do with seven. Sabbath rest. That's a faith step for some of you. Church, obviously, serving giving, showing up, being here. All of this is a part of the practices. Communion. Oh, communion. Taking part and reminding yourself, confessing sin, reminding yourself of what Christ has done and passing that to the neighbor, to the person next to you in holy corporate communion, which we'll be celebrating at one church, October 27. Fasting. We love this one. But in a world where we live to eat, and this, this is one of the things you could do the most to deny yourself and just say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to be okay. If you're like, I could just never fast. I'm not that kind of person. I can't do that. Well, Jesus doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast, do it like this. Because it is a common practice of the way of Jesus because it pushes down our flesh. And often, even physically, we know, has so many benefits, much less spiritually, mentally, emotionally. To deny ourselves... And lastly, but again, not exhaustively, community. Making sure I'm thinking about and being a part of community. And again, all of these things aren't lists, but following the way of Jesus is living and practicing the things that Jesus did. I'm going to end with my favorite author, a quote.
quote from him as we think about the trajectory of our life. C.S. Lewis says this. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. The decisions we make to live in the way of God and recognize and repent and reorientate our lives to say, be central. To recognize something else is central. You need to be central in my life. To realize you're not on a treadmill, but you're either going one way or another. And Jesus says, my way is the best and was built for you. Father, I thank you that your way is best, your way is right, your way is glorious, and we give you praise and honor in this place. I ask, Lord, for you to move as we worship you in spirit and in truth, God, as we make you the center, even starting now with the words and the prayers that come out of our mouth through worship, through community, through one-anotherness. God, to say, I want you to be the central figure that everything else orbits around. Thank you, your word says you will be with us always, in here and out there. In Jesus' name.